Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hello, welcome. I'm going to get us started so that we have um, the full time to engage with our speaker today. I am uh, Hannah Riley Bowles. I uh, co-direct the Women in um, Public Policy program with Iris Bonat. We're delighted that you're enjoy joining us for this very exciting um, speaker series that we've organized this spring. This is the first of uh, three talks that are going to be uh, about or uh, speaking to uh, work, family, uh, conflicts, and policies. Um, uh, I, so I'm welcoming you all here um, as we, and you might think about this as you engage in terms of uh, questions and things, that we're also will be joined by a virtual community. So these uh, sessions are recorded and have now been um, downloaded something like 50,000 times. So there's, there's a virtual community. We're thrilled to be um, joining us um, as well as the, a, a really richly full room even right before spring break. So I'm, uh, I think it's a compliment uh, to you, Professor Brenton, our speaker today, that we have such a full room um, heading well, while everybody's heading out of town. So let me introduce um, our speaker today is Mary Brenton. She is the Reichauer Institute Professor of Sociology at Harvard University. She is also the, the director of the Reichauer Institute of Japanese Studies. Um, a lot of her work um, focuses on why post-industrial um, parts of the world, including Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, and Asia, are now experiencing um, historically um, low fertility rates, which obviously have very important um, implications um, for uh, their, uh, their economies and their economic development. And she has linked this very powerfully to um, gender role ideologies as well as um, policies, public social policies and organizational policies. And it's really, I think her work and, and her colleagues has, have opened many people's eyes, uh, both um, um, in academia and in the policy world. So we are totally thrilled uh, to have you here joining us today. Um, so I will, I will get off the stage so you can hear from who you want to hear from, but I will ask that you please um, join me in warmly welcoming uh, Professor Mary Brinton. Thank you, Hannah, for that lovely introduction. And I'm very honored to be in this lineup of speakers that uh, uh, is happening this year. So I want to start out by saying this was kind of a challenging talk to put together for three reasons. Um, one reason is that I have many friends and students and colleagues in the audience who know the two country cases that I'm going to be talking about, Japan and Korea, very well. And I know others in the audience probably don't know these, these cases very well. So I'm going to be trying to do this balancing act between, um, between the different parts of the audience. Second thing that I found challenging was I'm using, I'm going to show you a lot of macro level data, and then I'm going to zoom down to the micro level and talk about interviews that my team has done. So it's a real macro, micro talk because I want to be trying to show you on the ground level how some of these mechanisms, institutional and organizational mechanisms that I talk about on the macro level are really being enacted in people's daily lives. 
And the third reason it's a little bit difficult to put together is there are a lot of things I'm still trying to figure out. But I think if, you know, if we waited to give talks until we'd figured everything out, probably we wouldn't have any talks. So, <laughs> so um, that's the intro. Um, I'm going to start, actually, not with East Asia, Japan, and Korea, but with the U.S. as a reference point. So in the United States, <coughs> there have been significant changes in the marriage and employment behaviors of highly educated women in the past 10 to 15 years. And some of these changes are the following. Highly educated women are now more likely to marry than women at other edu educational levels. They spend much less time out of the labor market than prior cohorts of highly educated women. And particularly important for this talk, they have 1.7 children on average. And so this has led the authors of a recent article to state the following. Highly educated women in the US are increasingly choosing not to sacrifice their families for careers. Now this sounds like a very rosy picture. However, we know that there's a strong motherhood wage penalty in the United States, that there is a lot of difficult work-family um, balancing and, and juggling going on. But it's interesting that this has happened in the United States that highly educated women more and more, compared to 10 or 20 years ago, are having families and having careers. East Asia is very different. Um, the birth rates in East Asia are very low across all education groups. And the labor force participation patterns of women, particularly in the two countries I'll talk about, Japan and South Korea, are discontinuous rather than continuous over the life cycle. Basically, women face a much starker choice between aiming for a career or having children rather than being able to do both. Why is this a problem? It's a problem because countries in East Asia, because of low birth rates, are already experiencing labor shortages. So there's a very strong demand for women to participate in the labor force, even when they're mothers. Um, and Japan, in particular, is exhibiting very rapid population aging, which I'll show you in a moment. Um, but I want to make a gender equality claim as well. Basically, nearly half of the population of highly educated young adults women have almost no chance of becoming managers or key decision makers in government or business if they have children. And this is not an overstatement for Japan. Um, if you look at the percentage of women who've made it into management positions in the government that are, again, key decision-making positions and so forth. So this incompatibility uh, between work, very intensive work, which I'll show you, this is part of the problem, and family is really cutting out a lot of women, highly talented women, from important decision-making positions. So 
quickly to show you fertility rates. This is the post-industrial world. And I show you this mainly, oh, this is a nice big screen, so you can see it very well, I think. Um, mainly to show you that in North America, which is the green line, um, fertility birth rates have come down. They're still relatively close to two children per woman. This is across all, all educational groups. Um, and then you see this cluster of countries. Um, Northern Europe is up here with, um, with the U.S. and Canada. But the other countries are down line shows um, East Asia. Now this may not look like a huge difference, but in terms of population, the maintenance of the population, this is a huge um, difference in birth rates. Um, and here's Japan and South Korea. South Korea's decline in fertility was much more recent because its industrialization process was much more recent and much more rapid than Japan's. But you can see that both of these countries have birth rates below 1.5. So the population is not reproducing itself. And the governments of both countries see this as a very major problem. Um, as the population becomes more and more aged, the ratio of the working age population to the aged population becomes very distorted. Pension um, plans and pension costs become um, very weighty, so there's a greater fiscal burden on the state. And a lot of economists argue that with a smaller working age population, the productivity of the economy and economic growth is going to be much lower. So having a small working age population is seen at the government level as a big problem. Um, I'll show you the figure for Japan. It's a little frightening. Um, but the projection for 2055, um, I used to show this and say it's a mummy shape, and then I felt really guilty about it until I realized that other people also call it that. So um, I haven't put it here, but it, it looks like a mummy. Why? Because by 2055, it's projected that four out of 10 Japanese people will be over age 65. So as of this moment, there are more adult diapers sold in Japan than baby diapers. That's already happened. Um, and uh, I'm going to be talking about fertility and uh, gender inequality. So let me show you, and then I'll get to my central question um, that I'll be addressing today. Let me show you the female labor force participation rates by age. Japan and Korea are the only OECD countries that continue to demonstrate um, the M-shaped curve of female labor force participation. I should mention my co-author is here with Solo. I didn't introduce her at the beginning. She's on the first slide, but um, she's my collaborator in this, in this uh, paper. So you can see um, the M-shaped curve. Now, and, and then I've put the U.S. as a reference. Now, this is a, an approximate depiction of continuous or discontinuous labor force participation. Also, I would note that the Japanese government does not release statistics for this by marital status. So Japan actually looks pretty good um, until you realize that 
25% of Japanese women age 35 to 39 are not married. So they're probably, you know, way up there. And this would look quite different, I think, if we were looking only at married women and only at um, mothers. So the, the drop, this dropout rate would be larger. But I've searched and searched and talked to Japanese colleagues, and you cannot get this data by um, marital status. And I think it may be purposeful on the part of the government, because the government likes to claim that women are fully integrated into the economy. Um, so the central question that Ansel and I ask in our paper is, why does highly educated married women's continuous employment over the life course, especially full-time employment, remain so fundamentally incompatible with child rearing? And again, it's, you know, we have incompatibilities in the United States, but Japan and South Korea, we think, are really quite extreme cases. And we think that there may be some lessons for the United States um, for the future. Now, the dominant theory that's um, been being used by many social demographers, especially in Europe, where there are also low birth rates in a lot of countries, is gender equity theory. And this was um, propounded by, originally by an Australian demographer, Peter MacDonald. And his argument is pretty simple, that as women's education and labor force participation increase in post-industrial societies, as they have universally, that birth rates are going to go down unless household gender equi equity within households improves. Why? Because women will essentially have a double shift. They'll be doing everything at home, and they'll be working in the market, and running out of time, basically. So he really emphasizes um, the um, importance of greater sharing within households between men and women of um, housework and childcare. And his theory has led to a pretty large body of work now that looks, in fact, at how the gendered household division of labor um, in a household influences whether couples have a second birth. And the evidence is pretty strong that husband's contribution does matter. Um, in very um, sort of traditional uh, gender role ideological societies, the contribution has to be pretty high for it to matter. Um, but um, greater egalitarianism within couples, again, seems to make a difference. Okay, macro-level data. Not a lot of gender egalitarianism in Japanese and Korean households. Men, on average, do about 15% of housework and childcare, far below any other OECD countries. You can also note, you know, at the top end of the spectrum, in no country, not even Sweden, not even Denmark, not even Norway, do men do half. But this is quite remarkable, that the contributions are so low. And I've looked at this in, with many different data sets, qualitative, quantitative, it's always the same. Um, it's basically 80 to 100% of housework and childcare that Japanese and Korean women do. 
So it's an extreme case. Um, but these intra-household dynamics, gender egalitarianism or you know, a sharply gendered division of labor, are of course affected not just by cultural norms, I've, I've written a lot about that, but they're also affected by how the labor market works. And this is what I'm really going to be talking centrally about today, especially how the labor market works for men, because this has a very direct impact on women. So men's allocation of time between employment and family, obviously, has a relationship to how women prioritize employment or child rearing. And we know through many studies that, you know, again, that this, these time allocations affect uh, gender inequality. But I'm going to look at an antecedent set of conditions, which is how labor markets operate and what organizational work norms are like. And I'm going to add the birth rate as an outcome. So gender inequality and the birth rate are both um, strong outcomes. And our main contribution in this paper as we see it is to show how labor market institutions and organizational norms influence not only gender inequality, but the birth rate itself. And they do so in very profound and quite extreme ways in Japan and South Korea. So first I'm going to talk briefly about the labor market, because labor market structure, especially in Japan, is very different than in the United States. So Japan, as many of you know, has a tradition um, 20th century tradition of long-term employment for men. Um, fewer and fewer men are able to get such jobs, but those are re regarded as the best jobs. Um, and women generally want to marry a man that has one of those jobs. Um, these jobs um, entail a lot of face time, very long work hours, but good promotional trajectories and much sharper wage increases than jobs um, that are not long-term. Long um, and there's very strong employment protection. It's very difficult for Japanese firms to get rid of these men, to fire them. So um, there's a very strong amount of employment protection. So this tends to protect male breadwinners and also to ask a lot of them. Why? Because it's very hard to move out of one of these firms into another firm in any kind of equivalent position. So this is what you see in Japan, and to some extent Korea, is a very, very bifurcated labor market with particular terms, Japanese terms, for what it means to be a regular full-time worker or to be anything else. And the demands on regular full-time workers are very, very high. Um, so these, this employment protection, as I said, is accompanied by, well, this is the negative way of putting it, very strong wage and promotion penalties if you leave the labor market, because there's a lot that's based on seniority. And also very strong penalties if you change firms. 
so very low interfirm mobility. And I've, I've actually been quite surprised. I go to Japan every summer for a couple of months, and then I leave when it gets too hot and humid. Mm -hmm. But um, I've been quite surprised that labor mobility has remained so low in Japan. In other words, the extent of mid-career hiring, it's increased, but not very much. So what does this mean? One of the things it means is if you have one of these good jobs, your employer has a lot of control over you. You basically have almost no negotiating power because there's no good exit strategy. Um, so that men are operating un under those conditions. And women are operating under the conditions that if they want one of those jobs, they're going to be working very long hours. Um, they can't leave and come back into the labor force in an equivalent position unless they take child care leave, which we can talk about later. Um, um, so the conditions are actually quite extreme for highly educated workers. And sometimes when I'm speaking with an entirely American audience, which I realize this is not, um, I ask people to think about the consulting industry and the finance industry that so many of our Harvard undergraduates go into and expand that image to white-collar employment in Japan because it's much more widespread and it's the template for success um, for a Japanese man. Um, so as I said, these, this type of labor market, again, tends to be highly bifurcated between these good jobs and jobs that are, that are not so good, much more peripheral, um, with very low job security, um, usually short-term <coughs> contracts, low pay, and very meager benefits. And these jobs, this is the sector that's grown dramatically in both Japan and Korea in recent years. Um, so this is the kind of labor market structure that we're talking about. And this is the kind of work hour norms that we're talking about. So again, you see Japan and Korea at the extreme end. So the percentage, U.S. is getting up there, um, and there's been a lot written about overwork in the United States. But again, Japan and Korea are very extreme cases where between 20 and 25 percent of employees, I believe this, this is only for men, are working more than 50 hours a week. We're, we're kind of inching up there, which is one of the implications of my talk. Um, but it's a very, um, it's, it's a recipe for not much family life. Um, and I'm going to show you that in some of the qualitative data. So how do these dynamics play out in people's everyday lives? So Unsil and I did. Um, with some help from other people, um, interviews with 150 highly educated men and women in the prime marriage and childbearing ages, 24 to 35, in urban areas of Japan and South Korea. And we divided the sample um, among three groups, single, married with no kids, and married with one child, so that we could talk to people about their, their work lives, their family lives, the decisions they're making, how many children they want to have, and so forth. And three patterns, um, main patterns, emerged in the interviews. And 
I would say I was surprised at the uniformity of these patterns. Both men and women, because we interviewed um, men and women, not in the same couple, but um, separate samples of men and women, both men and women tacitly accept that women will perform almost all of the housework and child care um, because men should have a good job. Now, part of this is driven by, undoubtedly, by the wage inequality between men and women. Um, you know, the greater the wage inequality, the more important it is that the man have a good job. So there are many interconnected parts of this um, story, but um, I'll just read you a couple of quotes. Um, this is a quote from a 32-year-old Korean man with one child. Basically, the meaning of leading the family well for a married man is that he feeds his family by earning enough money. If, as the head of the family, he cannot do this, he will lose his position in the family and will not receive respect from his wife. And in defining this, this central role of a husband in terms of his breadwinning capability, the majority of, the high majority of male and female interviews, interviewees acknowledge that this means men have to work very long hours and they can contribute almost nothing to household work and um, child rearing. So, and what was interesting to us is that very few of the, our female married interviewees blamed their husbands. They blame society. They blame the way things work. Um, and here's an example um, from a Korean mother of one child. I'm frustrated that I have to do most of the housework and childcare, especially on weekdays. However, at the same time, I feel bad asking my husband to do the dishes or clean the house because he comes home around 10 p.m., which is not unusual, and is exhausted and stressed out from working all day. Technically, it's not his fault. So individual men are not blamed so much because they are part of a system in which they, the definition of success um, is dependent on particular work patterns. Um, here's another um, quote. Um, this is from a Japanese woman who worked at a large home security company for five years after graduating from university. Her husband, and then, and then she got married and quit her job. About close to 60% of Japanese women quit the labor force entirely when they marry or when they have their first child. So this, this is not childcare leave, but actually leaving the labor force for a period of time. So Eiko says her husband works about 60 hours a week on average, leaving the house around 7 a.m. and rarely making it home for dinner. So as, as we were talking to her, she started laughing and she said, I barely see his face during the week. She does all of the housework. And when we asked her about her ideal division of household labor, she said, it's fine the way it is. The only thing that would bother me is if he doesn't appreciate, is if he takes it for granted. As long as he's appreciative, it's fine. After all, he is working, so the way I look at it, we are dividing things up by specialty. So you have this strong model of gender role, <coughs> gender role specialization. And we found 
um, in women's discussion of their own work aspirations um, that the majority of women very well understand the tr this trade-off that they're making between their own commitment and devotion to a career um, versus their ability to have children and to take home, care of the home and children. And Japanese women in particular um, really talked about employment as a way to remain connected to the world, but not as a career. There's no word for career in Japanese to begin with, but there are ways to talk about having a career. And um, these highly edu educated women in our sample just didn't, didn't really um, aspire to a career. Now, they're the ones who've selected into marriage. And I can talk about single people later. Um, so as women talk about their employment, they really talk about how they need to shape their employment around their husband's working conditions and around the family. Um, and a little, we found more, slightly more, women in Korea who are trying to buck the system and be career-oriented, um, but very few women in Japan. Um, in our qualitative data, this is the average time husbands arrive home on weekdays. So less than 10% arrive home before 7 p.m. Um, and the modal time in Korea is 9 p.m. And then you can see you know, the, other, the distribution. But it's very, very much based on long work hours. 10% um, of Japanese men in our sample arrive home at midnight. This is the average, their average time of arriving home. So husbands in these high-powered jobs are just not around very much. Um, so to summarize, this widespread acceptance of men's long work hours really renders the combination of career and children for women nearly impossible. And the women that we interviewed who are married, almost all of them adapted to this as the state of affairs. This is the way it is. Um, and we found that uh, most of them um, wanted to have two children because they chose specialization in the home and were, had either left the labor force or we're working much shorter hours. So it's a perpetuation of gender inequality. It's a situation that's created by gender inequality and working conditions, and then perpetuated by this adaptation by women, um, largely to the corporate demands on their husbands and the corporate demands that they would face if they were trying to be successful. Um, the other piece of this is that both of these countries are exhibiting historically high rates of staying out of this gender bargain, mm -hmm. not getting married. So in Japan, 35% of men aged 35 to 39 are never married. This is a very, very high 
proportion. This generally also means not cohabiting. And in Japan and Korea and other East Asian societies, if you're not married, you don't have kids. So, um, because the um, out of the, the proportion of births that occur outside of marriage is less than 5%. And nearly 25% of women aged 35 to 39 are never married. And we don't have a good understanding of who all of these people are who are opting out of the, the gender bargain that is so normative in Japan. Um, but <laughs> this, is my, this is my visual depiction of who um, we think they are. Probably this beautiful woman wants to have a career. So she's running away from this man who she would marry who would be working 65 to 80 hours a week. Um, so at the, at the level of high education, there are a lot of women who are just saying, <coughs> that's the gender bargain that society presents? No, I'm, I'm not going to go for it. Which means they don't have children. Or they wait very long to find a guy who you know, will accommodate their career expectations and then maybe they have children or maybe only one child, right? So there's definitely an opting out going on at the upper end, highly educated women, um, which again, we see less and less of in the United States because it's been more possible, I'll finish in a moment, more possible to, um, to have this balancing act even though it's difficult. At the bottom end of the class structure are guys like this. I just searched for a picture of a guy who doesn't look like he's, he's probably gainfully employed, but he looks kind of sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's, he's a low, I, I'm guessing he's a low earning man. Why is he left out of the labor market? Because he cannot be a good male breadwinner which is a qualification to get married. So again, these strong gender norms are operating probably at the upper end for highly educated women, and then at the lower end for men, because low-earning women want to marry a male breadwinner. And these guys are not those guys. Um, so there's this you know, weird thing going on in the labor market where there are more available highly educated women and more available very low educated men and they're not going to marry each other. So they're both, you know, being left out again, largely because of these strong male breadwinner norms and because there's one way to make a Japanese family, right? Um, and that one way depends on a lot of contingencies that are, that are not working out well. So the upshot is that labor market institutions, the inflexibility of the labor market, the inability of people to move around in the labor market and negotiate for better working conditions and so forth, and these long work hour norms really need to change in order for gender equality 
to increase. And the reason that I have difficulty talking about this is that there are a lot of interlocking institutions and mechanisms. And it's hard to figure out where to break in. I've been studying gender inequality in Japan for decades. And there's a little more gender equality now in Japan, but this interlocking system of institutions and strong social norms makes, makes change difficult. So I'll say a couple words about uh, policy just because I have time. Um, one of the things that I've been advocating every time I have a chance when I'm in Japan is that childcare leave should be required for men. And I think it doesn't even have to be a long leave, but because of strong norms, very strong peer pressure, um, men, including the men that we interviewed, said when we asked if you would consider <coughs> taking childcare leave, which they're eligible for, they said, <laughs> and the reason was usually <laughs> none of, yeah, many people who speak Japanese know what I'm doing. Um, it was basically, um, I can continue in Japanese if you'd like, but it was basically mm, none of the men around me take childcare leave. So I can't do it. It's highly, highly stigmatizing. Now we're, we have that stigma in the United States too. We're definitely you know, dealing with that. But for a Japanese man to do it is, uh, there's, there's a Neiman Fellow, a Japanese Neiman Fellow here this year who's a, um, a journalist for Bloomberg. And he met with me and he said, I took childcare leave. I was the first one in my office. He's very, very unusual. Um, but basically, um, you know, men, uh, some men say, well, if I did that, I think my colleague would say, don't you have a wife at home? You know, because again, the gender roles are so strong, um, and the fear that um, a man will be regarded as not serious about work. Again, this exists in the United States, but it's, it's magnified in in Japanese society because the norms are so strong. <laughs> um, and I think the only way to break that strong norm is just make it mandatory. And it wouldn't even have to be long. Because then men would be able to say, yeah, I, yeah, I took childcare leave because my company made me do it. But it would become normative. And sometimes with very strong norms, you have to pull a lever, I think. Um, long work hour norms, the Japanese government's working on this um, to try to, because the Japanese government has finally realized that these long work hour norms are not healthy for people, they're very unhealthy for families. Um, it's, it's hard because companies may, some companies have tried turning off the lights at 6 p.m. But people stay anyway and try to keep working, or um, you know they've they've tried. But I think part of it again is the norm. Um, and if you're if a company is in an industry where they're the only company that's doing that, and all the other companies are having their employees stay, you know, till eight or nine or ten p.m. Um, 
then you know it's it's just difficult because they the company may feel like it's not remaining competitive. So again, it's an issue of a norm and you know a critical mass. So there's some things that that you know we just need to kind of reach a critical mass. I think um, in a society where the norms are so strong, reach a critical mass, and then there'll be you know social change. So, um, so many of us are trying to think of, you know, these levers that might um, work. But, you know, I've made the case that long work hour norms um, for men have a spillover effect for women, and they also have a direct effect on women because women who go along with that system are probably, and are devoted to it, are probably not going to get married. So that's the story. And uh, there are lots of other parts of the research, so I'm very happy to take questions. Great. Thank you. So I think we can open up questions. And I talk more about Japan because I know it much better than Korea. But and Silva's here. <laughs> Thank you for that very interesting discussion. So I had a question about a set of solutions, one being what you just mentioned, but other solutions. So because it's such an aging population, yes. why aren't they using grandparents, aunts, uncles? You know, in many Asian countries, right. that group of people does a lot to help their kids yeah. for childhood. What is keeping them from using that whole group of people or helping out? Well, there people do use grandmothers if they're close by and if the grandmothers are willing to, to do this. Um, that doesn't change anything about gender relations, right? It still keeps um, child rearing and, and housework as women's, as women's work. But yeah, people do use um, grandparental support. But the extent, the, the percentage of families that are extended family households is much lower than it used to be. And people may live long distances from each other. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a solution that's, if, if it's possible for people, yeah, they, they use it. So for so. Korean government, they actually propose to pay $800 per month for grandparents if they're taking care of their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did talk about this. Yeah, we did talk about this so during the... So the Korean government recently uh, proposed to give roughly $800 from, per month for grandparents who are taking care of their grandchildren, uh, or a majority of them are grandmothers, um, yeah. especially mothers' maternal side. Um, and they proposed it. Uh, and we found through our interviews that these are helpful, but they're not necessarily making couples to have um, two children or three children, especially because a lot of daughters feel bad for their mothers who are aging too, and they don't want to hurt to have three grandchildren or two. You know, one is enough. So it's not necessarily making change in terms of fertility um, mm -hmm. intentions, but it is definitely helping them to do both, for, especially for a woman. Um, but it wasn't really changing the pattern of fertility and pensions for, for within our sample. Yeah. <coughs>
Hi, um, thank you for your talk. Um, one of the points you made that really struck me was that um, strong employment protections for full-time workers protect male winners at the expense of um, women who want careers. And I'm just wondering, because um, I've always thought of strong employment protections as being a good thing for workers, but what, um, what legislative changes would you propose uh, in terms of those employment protections that would still protect workers but also solve this problem? Yeah. So, one of, as I mentioned, one of the big problems in the Japanese labor market has been the, the proliferation of jobs that have no employment protection. Um, the jobs that are low paying, that are, you know, one year contract, two year contract jobs. Um, and the, the problem is it's very, it's very difficult to move between those two sectors. It's very difficult for like this guy, if he's, I'm assuming he's had, you know, a series of short-term contract jobs. He's damaged goods when companies look at him as a regular full-time employee. Because they don't know why. It maybe it have been totally structural, you know, conditions that forced him to take these irregular jobs. But it, the companies tend to attribute it to him, something being wrong with him. So the lack of mobility between these two sectors is a real problem. Um, yeah, the, the, the issues with employment protection, you know, for the, these stable, um, well-paid workers is that, again, the trade-off is that employers have a huge amount of control over them. People can, legally, people can be transferred to another part of the country at a one week notice. Um, and there are other, you know, restrictions on, on behaviors that they can have. So, hmm, some form of employment protection that's, that's a little less oppressive. Um, and um, it, you know, it's, it's hard to know, but also some kind of um, upgrading of these very bad jobs which have no employment protection. Because also women who are in the, the um, contract jobs and part-time jobs have no access to childcare leave. The only women who have access to childcare leave are the ones who are in these regular full-time jobs. And childcare leave is kind of working for women, at least in terms of many women are taking, who are eligible are taking it, sometimes for long periods of time. They then come back into their high-powered position and are basically expected to work the same way they did before they had a child. So, I'm saying a lot of things together, but a kind of uh, mm, regularization of working conditions across sectors, a, a bit more regularization and a bit more equalization would, would benefit, you know, people in both sectors in different ways. Does that make sense? 
if you if you look at the societies in Europe that have strong employment protection, they tend to have very low birth rates. Um, there's a high correlation, and again, that's because generally. Employment protection is protecting men who got into the labor market and have stayed. And there's not, there's not a way for women to you know, leave a job like that and then come back in mid-career. There's just there's no entry point. So they tend, employment protection tends to protect or support a male breadwinner system in general. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you can comment on the relationship between these two groups of women that are emerging, between the career women and the women who are choosing the model of, you know, homework. Um, what is the relationship? Is there is there tension? Is you know what does that look like? Hmm. Well, my, my um, surprise was that there are so few career-oriented women in our sample, um, even among single women. So, you know, we found, Unsil and I found this pattern of women, especially in Japan, a little bit less so in Korea, adapting, you know, to their husbands' work demands and to what the family needs. Um, and so then, um, this year, I've been turning to the single female interviews, interviewees and thinking, well, the, all the career women must be there. And most of the single women we interviewed um, also want a, male, want a male breadwinner and want to ramp down their work. So it's puzzling. It's puzzling. And so? Um, so, yeah, it was puzzling, but at the same time, so we uh, went back again to understand what is their rationale or um, logic, since we have a lot of like rich, qualitative data, and it wasn't necessarily, they weren't saying, you know, I'm a traditional woman, I'm going to be feminine. No. It wasn't the, that wasn't the way they talked about this. No. Actually, they were like, this is a smart choice. Like, because men are not going to help me out, then I'm going to do work and then work at home, it's gonna be endless, I'm, I'll be dying. Um, and it's, it is a rational choice for me, given that the society is not changing fast, not within my age limit, mm. um, my life, mm. within my life. So it is a smart choice. So some women will teach me that I should do that too in the future. So that's how that, that was their logic. Instead of, oh, I'm feminine, I want to stay home, I want to yeah. be home. Well, some do, but a lot of, majority of women, the way they, um, they conveyed their narrative was this rational choice. Um, and that they, they want to work. Yeah, they, but they, they all, don't want to, all of them wanted to work. They that don't want the to thing. work like men. Mm -hmm. because, and most men probably don't want to work like men in these societies. <laughs> so women see that, you know, they see their husbands exhausted. And also many of these women worked in very exhausting jobs when they were single, and they're kind of done with it. So it's, it's an extreme situation. Um, I'm going back to Japan this summer, 
and um, I'm arranging interviews of, of <laughs> people in this group because I want to see what they're thinking. And I want to try to find, you know, some high-flying, career-oriented women because we just couldn't find very many, which was surprising. Because the Japanese government sort of likes to say, well, it's women's fault that the birth rate is low. You know, women are so oriented towards careers. It doesn't, that story doesn't seem to really hold um, very strongly. Um, but, you know, this is a situation, again, where the, the low birth rate and gender inequality are, are wrapped up, you know, tied up in this in this um, complicated relationship, and uh, it's it's difficult to solve. It's very difficult to solve. Hi. So my question is more of looking at like the various sectors of work. So you have. So my roommate is Japanese, and we've talked a little bit about that, but she was saying that because she works for an American company, she actually gets a little bit more benefits and she has more time right. to herself compared to one of those like general trading companies right. who are like infamous for these problems. So I was wondering whether is there anything that you know, like international companies can kind of do to change this gender norms that you're having? Well, it, it is the case that international firms, multinational firms attract um, quite a lot of highly talented Japanese women. Um, they don't tend to attract as many men, Japanese men, because again, it's, you know, the ideology is job security, you know, that men need job security, and multinational firms don't necessarily offer that. Um, but, you know, if the numbers got large enough, among highly educated women, the, the sort of escaping to multinational companies, if those numbers got large enough, it could be a warning sign. But I'm not sure it's a large enough population that corporations, Japanese corporations, really worry about that. Hi, thank you so much for this very interesting talk. Um, I've been to Korea recently several times and I've observed such stark statistics that you're presenting. And I think definitely the institutional system is very um, embedded. That's a huge problem. But uh, given what's really striking is this such deep similarity between Korea yeah. and Japan, yes, yes. Uh, which is sort of outside of the other normal uh, industrial countries' trajectory or journey. Right, right. And, and I think it uh, speaks for how deeply embedded or ingrained the, the cultural norms yeah. are, yeah. which both men and women have bought into. Right. Yeah, and then and, and I know that, um, you know, Prime Minister Abe and President Moon are trying desperately to throw whatever they can to try to encourage women to have babies, but right. what other things can they do to actually shift the cultural norms? I think that's the real challenge here. Yeah. Well, again, I think changes in organizational 
practices can help push norms, you know, in a different direction. Um, for instance, so I talked about, you know, men being reluctant to take paternal leave. Okay, make it mandatory so that men do and they don't have to make excuses about it and they don't have to be embarrassed about it. That's one thing. Um, another thing is that, um, and here this is a complicated um, piece of information, but many Japanese companies now, because they, they do need labor so badly, highly educated labor, they are letting women take ever longer childcare leaves, but when the women come back to work, you know, again, they're subject to these very long working conditions, um, or now they can shift to the mommy track um, and have shorter working conditions. But it would be better for everybody if there were just shorter work hours, because women sort of asking for and demanding shorter work hours perpetuates gender inequality. I mean, we know that. So um, creating more sort of on-ramping for women, you know, not excluding them from the managerial track because they've taken childcare leave. I think, I think the power or the, um, the responsibility, I, I really see it resting with corporations and work organizations um, because they are shaping people's domestic lives in very profound ways. I mean, in the United States, um, you know, we can think of, you know, lots, especially at Harvard, right, lots of high-flying couples um, who are high-earning and use a lot of childcare supports and somehow make it work. Um, and they sometimes cut corners a little bit in terms of, you know, telling their employer, I can't do that. You just can't do that in Japan. You can't say, no, I can't take on that responsibility. So managers <coughs> need to be retrained, you know, not to um, give an ungodly amount of work to an employee at 5.30 p.m and say, I need this by 9 a.m. Um, I mean, this just, again, is making family life virtually impossible. I, I'd like to hear from some of the Japanese, Japanese <laughs> um, women or men in the room, um, especially, you know, if there's anything that I'm saying that sounds not quite correct or whatever, it's very good for me to hear from, uh, yeah. I, I Japanese, but, I <laughs> but she knows Japanese yes. culture very, very well. Um, and one thing that was really troubling to me when I worked at this terrible, I mean, it was just that, just oh, yeah. so, was, um, so I worked at a Japanese company in a Japanese, all in Japanese environment, and I spoke Japanese. And, and she quit. I quit, <laughs> yeah, because it's like this, it's terrible. Um, I mean, it's just, they expect you to work 80 hours, and if you say, I remember my, my manager, when I had a really good understanding manager, when I quit, he said, he told the story, he said, Teresa, she was, first um, 
subordinate I ever had who told me no. You know, and I was so shocked, but I also respected that. So I think, um, but that's how it is. There's just yeah, you can't social you can't norms. Really say no, I, I, um, I won't do it. Yeah, it's otherwise it really derails you from the you'll be placed, and they can't fire you, but they'll put you in a crappy job or <laughs> they'll transfer you to you know the middle of nowhere. Um, but one thing that I was very troubled by was I knew the um, labor laws in Japan, mm -hmm. and they're extremely weak and they are not enforced yeah. at all. Yeah. And yeah. one th one solution that I think. I thought I thought a lot about this since I had five years to think about it was um, to increase the overtime payment. I think right now in Japan it's only 1.15, um, and so and also employers are allowed to. And I know this because this was my contract. They they include overtime in your contract, so they'll say we'll pay you you know um, like 1,900 yen um, or 19,000 dollars a month. I don't know. I can't. Sorry, can't. Anyway, they'll pay you a certain amount, and then you know. 30 hours of overtime is included in this amount, right? And this was actually fairly new. I know in the, um, I think it was the 70s or the 80s that they tacked this on, but um, so you'd be working, you know, 30, and then after that 30 hours of overtime, that, but that's, you know, this is still, right, 60, 80 hours a week, then they'd come to you and say, you have to stop working because we don't want to pay you more than is included in your plus overtime contract. But as a, you know, you're coming out of college and you don't have the negotiation room to say, I don't want to do that. Um, and especially I graduated in 2010 and the labor market was very bad. And, and as Professor Brenton mentioned, because one of another bad thing for the, uh, the job protections is that when you have sort of a slow economy, um, the companies will not offer jobs to new right. recruits because right. they want to protect the old jobs. So if you're like me and you you graduated from college and you just need a job, you don't have the negotiation room to say like, no, I don't want to work 30 hours of overtime. Yeah. Um, so one solution that I thought of is, is being like France and making overtime you know, twice as much as regular time and making these sort of clauses, the plus overtime clauses illegal, but also it's going to take, I mean, they're the, the um, enforcement is very, very, very poor. Enforcement is very weak. Um, um, and yeah. I just think the manner, they don't have enough people um, it's, yeah, so that, that's one potential solution that I thought of. Yeah, it's definitely true that the labor laws are, are not enforced well at all. It requires a lot of monitoring of companies and, yeah, it doesn't happen to the extent that it should. I wanted to explain a little bit on the idea of long hours and maybe reflect back to an earlier talk we had from Professor Claudia Golden about the distinction between long hours yes. and being on tap. Yes. And I feel like both of those may be an issue here. And yeah. we see the being on tap issue in the U.S. in consulting and finance. I mean, right. I have friends who've been right. in consulting for 15 years and thought they'd be in it for two years. So that's something to know for the, those of you whose friends are considering it. You may not get out. And they're still having to skip weekends because of something that comes up. Yeah. So um, yeah. I think it might be two problems. I think the being on tap is hard because that is a competitive thing. I mean, if Samsung needs to turn around a product, they have a competitive advantage if they can require people to work on the weekends. Yeah. The longer hours, I'm curious about what the evidence is on actual productivity. because It's not good. <laughs> and then why is there not, then my follow-up question would be, why is there not a bottom line reason to at least cut back on the typical hours? Right. I mean, it may not solve it because you can't have, as Professor Golden was saying, you can't have both people on tap 
because then if both employers call the person in, even if their overall hours is reasonable. In a couple. In a couple. Somebody's got to be able to not be on tap. But at least the length of the hours, I'm curious why companies aren't seeing a productivity boom to having shorter hours. It's a good question. Can any of the Japanese people in the audience answer that? Because Japanese productivity, especially white-collar productivity, is really bad. It's really low and has been for years. Uh, can you go to the? Um, yeah. I just wanted to add color about uh, productivity in long hours. Yes. I, I'm Japanese and I've been uh, working for like <laughs> traditional Japanese company where no one is in uh, no female in top executive level and twenty percent uh, new hires. And I used to work until like 2, 3 a.m. and I didn't question that. I worked on weekends. <laughs> and um, one thing about productivity is there is still a culture that if you leave earlier than your yeah. boss, yes. then you might be considered as rude. So some people will just stay there without working. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that your boss leaves. Um, that sort of seniority, seniority culture um, also affects the productivity and also the content of actual long uh, hour right. work. Right. <laughs> so, so requiring managers to leave. Yeah, I'm walking. Leave at six p.m. Because <laughs> it's true. I mean, I we did find in the interviews that fewer. I expected everybody to say that um, I can't leave until my manager leaves. Not everyone said that, but indeed it is the norm, and I've, I've witnessed it many times. So the typical scenario is, you know, this is a, a say, a government office or a, a white collar workplace, and actually you're sitting across from each other like this, so everybody's visible to everybody. I'm the boss and I'm here and I can see all of you um, and everybody stays until I start packing up and then I walk to the elevator and I get on the elevator and no but everybody's still sitting here and you know it's a it's a very accurately timed event because once I'm out of the building everybody packs up and leaves. That's the traditional way of working. And it's breaking down the all, <laughs> but it's breaking down a little bit. But yeah, I think I think the key is managers, you know, convincing managers about these productivity issues and um, the underutilization of highly educated women. You know, by by kind of forcing women to quit because of these brutal working conditions, or making it so desirable for women to take short work hour often, get off the managerial track. Managers are the key, I think. Um, and some companies are, you know, are really pushing the envelope and trying to change. So the positive thing I can say is that I see a lot more diversity across companies in the way that they're managing work. Um, so it's not quite as uniform as it used to be, but, but convincing these middle-level managers almost 
all of whom are men, many of whom have stay-at-home wives, convincing them that, you know, productivity has, is being lowered by these work practices, um, that, you know, going to Claudia Golden's work, that there is more interchangeability of, of people for some jobs. Um, that's really, really key. Um, I tried to get Claudia, I was, I was emailing Claudia, who's a good friend, a couple of weeks ago, um, and I tried to, to get her to, you know, give me some statistics that show that, if, that um, economic growth is stronger if women are working full time, and she can't, she says no. Because, because she went into this, you know, this typical thing of, well, they're productive at home, you know, they're raising children, and then they're providing a little bit of labor to the economy. That's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I wanted to hear, no, women need to work full time to, to boost economic productivity. And what I'm really, I'll be perfectly, Maybe I won't be perfectly honest. Never mind. <laughs> I don't really like the results of some of our research. I'm just so surprised to see women basically saying, I'm giving up. I'm giving up. It doesn't make sense for me, as Vincil said. It doesn't make sense to try to have a career given these conditions. And this, there, there are these expressions in Japanese and Korean, it's just the way it is. This is, this is really, you know, difficult. This is the way it is. This is the way the system operates. So it's very systemic. And again, the way to, to break it is to cut in at certain places, you know, key places. Um, Managers are super, super important. If a manager takes childcare leave, virtually no male managers take childcare leave. If they do it, that could also have a positive ripple effect. But if they're not doing it, then why will a 35-year-old subordinate do it, right? So again, with norms, you need, you need a demonstration effect. And, and to create a kind of cascade, right? Cascading effect. Um, and sometimes requirements um, or strong, strong urging of some people in power to do this can create that, you know, in a society with such strong norms. Um, I want to add one point about productivity. <laughs> so I've been doing the follow-up interview uh, with the professor Brinton. Yes. And, and one every, every time, Kanoko <laughs> you can say that. Yeah, okay. But I think that every time I talk to the ch um, women, are get married, and then they have ch two children. So, but I think interesting thing and, is and that... They don't work. They don't work. Like, and they work at short working hours. Um, but they are so frustrated because they, they don't, uh, they are not evaluated based on their productivity. Mm -hmm. So they based on the, you know, how much in face time they have. So they never get promoted, they never get, they necessarily never get increased. So many women who was working short hours, so they were so frustrated. Yeah. But, you know, they, they are happy with their family life, but they're not, uh, they're so unhappy about their professional life. Yeah. So yeah. I think that Managers don't really pay attention to productivity. That's kind of right. very serious issue in Japan. Yeah. 
probably have time for uh, one more quick question. Yeah. Hi. Um, so my son started an east-west business in Japan and England, right? And he has an office in Tokyo. And his views about this, I think, would probably uh, be that there are very much more creative ways to do this. Yeah. You know, it's a very small office. Yeah. Um, but I just I wanted to kind of offer um, his company as a financial resource <laughs> and him. Good. And um, his, his wife is Japanese, and they have two bicultural daughters. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what you hit on, the deep cultural norms, you know, not just the work norms, but the, the cultural norms are, are really um, so um, intense in Japan that when she travels, when my daughter-in-law Yuri travels with my son, who's clearly not Japanese, in Japan, she'll say, oh, I'm from Thailand. And she'll say that so that she doesn't have to conform to oh the gosh. cultural norms, right? The everyday cultural norms. Nothing to do with work, long hours, just, you know, the rule book. Yeah. So um, anyway, it's not a question, but I just, I wanted to throw that in and I'll come and see you. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like to study his company. Because for sure there are more creative ways of doing this. Um, and... Yes, the way is not to say, you know, do it like we do it in the United States. It's to really make the case that, you know, this is, in Japan, that this is an old model that's not working very well. And, and part of the argument can be, again, these large numbers of young people who are just saying, nope, don't want to do that. Because that's a really unusual thing in a society to have 25 to 35 percent of people not marrying, not cohabiting. That's, that's, that's a sign of a society that's becoming quite unhealthy in a lot of ways, I think. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Professor Brinton.